Well, church, open with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now, we are going to skip a few verses, but don't worry, we will come back to them next week. So I want to assuage all fears that we are going to skip talking about the seventh day of creation and the Sabbath. It's very important, and it's going to get all of our time next week, but as we've been go- we're going through this, this study specifically in Genesis 1 through 3, we are really kind of uh, honing in on some of the big themes of Genesis 1 through 3 that reverberate throughout Scripture. So it, it's almost as if a, a very large rock gets dropped into the pond of reality in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and those ripples are still lapping up on the shores of our existence today. So the, the things that we learn about, about how God created, like we talked about last week, and what God created, what we're going to talk about this week, are things that we, we must know. If we get these things wrong, we get everything wrong. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about who God is, God as the center of creation, God, uh, of the center of, of understanding creation, the creator of all things. If we get that wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we get the first four words of Scripture wrong, then we're not going to understand any other words that come after that. I and mean, if, we, if we think that we have, then we're going to be gravely mistaken. And so that is how we're going to continue this study of Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 through 3. So read with me, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that went around the whole lands of the Havilah, where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is very good, and Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. May God be blessed as we read his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, still in these early chapters of Genesis, Ancient words given to your people thousands of years ago, but ancient words that are ever true. Lord, I know that I'm just impressed this morning that we get to speak your name, a name that uh, for, for centuries and centuries, people didn't even desire to speak out of fear. But we know that as we know you, We can cry out to you, Abba, Father. And so when we say Yahweh, or when we say Lord, but we mean the divine name revealed to Moses and given to your people, we understand that we are talking about you, the God I am, the God who is self-existent, the God who is not dependent upon anything. In that, Lord, as much as we understand that your loving kindness endures forever, we also understand that you endure forever. We don't outside of you. Humble us. Remind us of this as we come to your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, maybe you remember last week, 
It was like 15 degrees cooler and about uh, seven days ago. But we talked about Genesis 1. We talked about the creation account that we see in Genesis 1. I don't know if you noticed, but it kind of seems like we talked about the same thing this morning as we we're going through Genesis 2. And we did. This is actually a very important thing to acknowledge and a very important thing to spend a few minutes on. Because the very first thing that we learn about creation is that, in, that we have two accounts. In creation, we have two accounts, two different perspectives on creation. Notice verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Now, we just got through that. All of chapter 1 was on the first day, on the second day, all the way up through the six days we talked about, and then, uh, spoiler, next week we'll talk about day 7, which was Sabbath. Why then does Genesis go back and revisit these things? Well, there's a few uh, perspectives out there. And one of the most common perspectives that you may encounter as you engage with the world, as you get online, which is always just exciting but terribly dangerous, is that this is one evidence that the Bible was kind of pieced together over the centuries, that they had these two really good examples on where the world came from, and they were so good they, included, they decided to include them both. But this is really, at the end of the day, just an example about how this was cobbled together by people to push an agenda that they wanted everyone else to buy into. You'll hear that. You'll see that. You'll, you'll find that all over the place. If you are in some sort of apologetic situation, you'll encounter this. If you go to a critical studies of Scripture or comparative religions, this will get brought up right off the bat. But the fact of the matter is the church has understood these two creation accounts as long as there's been the church for the last 2,000 years. But beyond that, the Jewish people, the people who initially received Genesis, they understood that there was two creation accounts, and they didn't have a problem with it either. They understood that what we have is two different perspectives of the same thing. Two different perspectives of the same thing. And that's why there's two creation accounts. Uh, the, there's a, a, an Old Testament scholar named T. Desmond Alexander, and the way that he says it is more concise than I probably could. But Genesis 1, we see a panoramic overview followed in Genesis 2 by a zoomed-in close-up. So if Genesis 1 is a panoramic overview of how everything came to be, almost from God's perspective, and we kind of see it from God's perspective, and oftentimes, when we illustrate this for children, that's kind of how we see it. We picture it as like six different spheres, when in each sphere, the, the world gets more and more populated with the river, the waters being separated from the land, and then the fish and the birds and the plants and the animals being put in there. And that's the perspective that we get from Genesis 1. But from Genesis 2, we're seeing it as if we are there, if we are on the ground, we are not given some sort of picture of divinity from up on high. We are seeing it as if we were Adam. We were seeing it as if we, as if we were Eve, if we were on the ground, seeing everything come up around us. This illustrates the, not just the transcendence of God as we perceive in Genesis chapter 1, but the imminence of God that we see in Genesis 2, and we hold both of these things in tension and together. Something else that we understand and something that we see from this is even just the language that we have between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So I repeatedly used the divine name in Genesis chapter 2, and my particular translation uh, spells it out, Yahweh. Your translation, there's a very good chance if you're not using the LSB or something like that, it has LORD in all capital letters. And any time you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, it is that translator's way of putting the divine name in the text. Now, the divine name, again, is, is transliterated, is the best way to say it, from Hebrew, Hebrew, where we have it as, and this is getting way into the weeds than I wanted to this morning, but here we are. We're already neck deep, so let's keep wading through it. It is illustrated as the letters Y-H-W-H. 
Now, Hebrew was not, did not have vowels. It was not a letter or a language when it was written that had vowels. So all they had were these four consonants, which in English look like Y-H-W-H. And so over the years, people have tried to put different vowels in that word to make it say different things. So you may be very familiar with the word Jehovah. That's where that comes from. But the J sound was never in Hebrew. So it was, everything was always the soft J, the Y sound. So that is where we get Yahweh. Now, Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars, they're very content with this, but they also acknowledge that there's no possible way that we could know exactly what it is. This is simply our best stab at the divine name. Now, the reason that we don't have some sort of oral tradition of what this name is is because the Jewish people wouldn't even speak this word. Now, there's actually some interesting debates and conversation if it is, is something that we should even attempt to speak because they had this perspective thousands of years ago. But this is a word that was on the lips of Christ. This was a word that Christ himself spoke in the presence of his disciples. And so we can have confidence that because we are fellow heirs with Christ, that we can use the divine name. Whether we say, I am, as we, we believe and, and see as articulated as we go later into the Pentateuch, into Exodus, that the word Yahweh, what that means, I am who I am, I am the self-existent one. But all that to say was this is not a name that was used by the nations. What we see in chapter one is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is kind of a generic word for God. It's a generic word for God that when, they, when you see false gods being talked about later in the Old Testament, this exact same Hebrew word is being used. But you don't see the name Yahweh. You don't see that word that you may see as Lord in your scriptures being used of false gods of the nations. So we see something interesting revealed to us in Genesis chapter 2 about the intimacy and the imminence of the creator God. Whereas we see him from far off and transcendent in chapter one, Elohim, God. We see him close up, his loving kindness enduring forever. That covenant faithfulness and love that we learn about and that we know of, and that really the audience of Genesis would have understood already by the time they got Genesis. Remember, they're receiving Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy as they're going into the promised land. So they already know about the covenant. They already know about God as the covenant God. They already know about all the good things that he has done. They know him more as hovering over their houses and protecting them before they went out of Egypt than they did about him hovering over the waters of the deep. So they know him intimately. So in revealing his name, in this language, in Genesis chapter 2, it shows the intimacy and the closeness of God to his people. So the transcendent is in chapter 1, the imminent is in chapter 2, but they go together, they dovetail well. Francis Schaeffer, again, an apologist and philosopher of the 20th century, said that ultimately this is also the literary structure that occurs throughout the book of Genesis. First, less important things are dealt with rapidly. And then the things more important to the central theme of the Bible are returned to and dealt with more fully. While the accounts of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have a different emphasis in this way, they are not pitted against each other. Now, he uses some interesting language there. He says less important things. But I think that we would all acknowledge that. Plants are less important than you. Animals are less important than you. Later on this morning, and as we go through chapter 2, we're going to see the goodness of plants and rivers and things like that, of precious stones and minerals. But the acknowledgement that these things are not as important as people made in the image of God, a concept that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, is important to understand. And so you think about, we have the entire span of the creative act being talked about very, very quickly in Genesis 1, and then this slowed down perspective placing mankind and humanity in God's creation being talked about in chapter 2. And again, as Schaefer said, that's something that we see often in Genesis. We get this sweeping view of so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so -and -so lived so many years, and they begat so-and-so. 
we get this broad history, but then we get this microscopic view of the life of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So it's not only the content, it's also the context, the literary structure of Genesis 2. Moreover, we see a couple of other things. We see that in Genesis 1, we see God's kind of by fiat, ex nihilo, spoke out of nothing creative work. He is just saying it and things are happening. But then you see, as we touched on briefly last week, we see how God has a immediate act of creation also. So if you have the immediate creation, he speaks trees and they come into being. What you see in chapter 2 is God articulating through Moses that he creates trees and then he creates water to water the trees and so they can bear seed and produce fruit. You get the, you know, the 101 view, God created plants in chapter 1. You get the advanced horticultural 201 view in chapter 2. This is how he created plants in the earth to be perpetuated. You even see that in Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not spoken into being, as it says in chapter 2. It explains how they were created. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed life into his nostrils. Eve was created from Adam. God shows that his creative work is one that he has created to sustain, but also to perpetuate itself. One more thing, I know this is almost more academic than it is devotional, but I think that if if we want another proof at the legitimacy of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 standing together, Christ himself, when defending marriage, when defending the, the goodness of man and the goodness of man and woman, woman coming together, he takes a quote from Genesis 1 that God created man, and he creates a quote from Genesis 2 that man should cleave to his, his wife uh, and, and be together, and he puts them together when Jesus talks about marriage. Jesus believed in Genesis 1, and Jesus believed in Genesis 2, and he was perfectly comfortable and content in quoting from them in tandem together when making a case for marriage and for this institution that goes back to the creation of the world. So again, this almost may come across as more than academic. The divine name, where does that come from? Genesis 1, the perspective of it. Genesis 2, the perspective of it. But I think this just gives us a great example of something that we may be incredibly familiar with. You know, maybe it's January 1st. We dive into our Bible reading. We open it up. We get to chapter 1. We read through it. We've heard it a thousand times. We see the flannel graph and maybe the, the children's coloring books in the back of our head. We know Genesis 1 very well. We get to Genesis 2. It's kind of the same thing. And then we go on and we, we move into to other, maybe more significant ideas and topics as we get into Genesis. But as we slow down and as we acknowledge the divinely inspired and sufficient and inerrant text, we come to realize that God is, is trying to communicate something important in Genesis 1 and important in Genesis 2, and that they are complementary, dovetailing with one another. So of creation, we get two accounts. Now, church, there's so much more we could talk about as it relates to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but again, the idea of a panoramic overview followed by a zoomed-in close-up is perhaps one of the best ways that we can articulate and explain the differences in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, continuing on, we see something about the nature of creation. So last week we talked about the how of creation, and these two topics, they are almost inseparable. We can't can't necessarily talk about how God created without talking about what God created. But we have, I think they're worth talking about separately. So first we talk about in creation, how there's two accounts. But secondly, when we talk about in creation, how it is very good. Creation is very good. So last week, again, there's this repeated uh, phrase, let us make, then God saw, and it was very good. We see this over and over and over again in chapter one. But why is it very good? Well, in one sense, it is very good because God created it. We used the example of a platypus last week. I'm not sure why that came into my mind. It's just the most absurd animal that I can think of. Although I've seen some dogs that have been bred these days that are even more absurd than platypus, but that is man's doing, not God's. But you think about everything that God created and how he looked at it, and he said it was very good. 
And on the surface, that is sufficient. If God says it's good, then it is good. But at the same time, we perceive the goodness of God's creation. We see its goodness. We see its beauty. We see its consistency. We enjoy how it works together. We see that in a few different ways. Look in verse 9 in chapter 2. Out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. Desirable in appearance and good for food. When we drive by in springtime in New England, every one of us appreciates how trees are desirable in appearance. It goes from what seems to be an eight-month-long Halloween scene of dark and sparse and barren landscapes to little buds with bright colors on the ends of them, and everyone's happier. It's, it, it's almost as if we can take the pollen that we know is going to come out of them and bombard every aspect of our being and push that aside because of the beauty that we see from a flower, from a bud, from a tree. And similarly, it says that they are good for food. They are good for food. Now notice this. Is, does God need the food from the plants? Does God need the food from the tree? So, so who is declaring this good? Who is this good for? God says it's good because he has created it, but it's good because it's for us. It's good because, you know, as we drive by again, you know, out, going out of town and we see orchards and we see the buds that are there, knowing that they will be turning into apples, knowing that they will be good to eat, and just that amazing nature of an apple that you get from an orchard compared to the one that you get from market basket. When I was in youth ministry, we would take kids to corn mazes. And there was one particular corn maze that we would go to, and it would hand out a coupon when you finished the corn maze. You know, you survived, you're not still out there, we didn't have to go send someone to rescue you, here is your payment, it's a coupon. And it was a coupon for one free apple. Now, under normal circumstances, an apple is not too exciting for children. And of course, there's probably mothers in here who said, well, my child would choose an apple over a Snickers bar. Well, give them time, they'll figure it out. But in this setting, in this corn maze, when this teenager has a coupon saying one free apple and they go and they get to pick from the entire choice of apples, that fruit from the tree is the most desirable thing to them. They run past the caramel corn. They run past the cotton candy. And that apple is the apple not only of their coupon, but of their eye. Food is desirable to us. The produce that comes from God's creation is desirable to us. It is good. It is something that we enjoy. Now in verse 10, we see, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. Rivers are beautiful too. How many of us just enjoy sitting by a river? If we want, a, if we want to go rent a cabin, if we want to go on vacation somewhere, how many people say, we're going to go drive up to, to, to Conway, or we're going to drive to Lincoln, and we're going to drive in between the two cities? For what purpose? To sit in traffic? No. To get off of the road and go sit by the river. Some people swim. Some people put their feet in. There is something about being by a, the beautiful scenery of not just the river, but of the lush land around it in the valley that it's in. Now, these are simplistic concepts, church, that people like mountains, that people like rivers, that people like fruit. But where does this come from? Is it that our culture has programmed us to like it? Is there some evolutionary benefit to enjoy riverscapes rather than desert scenes? Both of these things are beautiful of their own right, but what Scripture teaches is that there is certainly a pragmatic benefit to being around things that are lush and full of vegetation, but there's also the baked into creation benefit of seeing what God has created to be good and acknowledging it as such. We see that for something that has what seems to be a less practical and a less pragmatic purpose. Look at verse 12. The gold of the land was good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. God was not just about things 
that we're going to make someone's body live longer or be healthier. God was not just about things that would pragmatically water plants and trees. He created a garden, a garden that was perceivable by him, but that was something that could be lived in and could be experienced by his creation, and it was beautiful. Gemstones, precious metals, these things are things that of all of the concepts that could be communicated, we would have loved to know Adam's relationship with a dinosaur, for example. To us, that would be incredibly fascinating. We would love to know the kind of, of tools that Adam potentially used. We would love to know that the first name that he gave something like a horse. All of these things would be incredibly fascinating for us to understand today. And these are questions you can ask Adam in heaven if you are still thinking about these things when you were in the glorified presence of Christ. But I digress. But out of everything that God has communicated, everything that he could have shown us about the nature of his creation, he talked about something that has been consistent since the beginning of time to today. The beauty and the value of gemstones and precious minerals. Many of us have gold on our persons now separated by thousands and thousands of years from when Genesis was written and by half of the globe because we understand and acknowledge and appreciate the beauty of things that are rare and of things that are precious. We have trees, we have food, we have rivers, we have gemstones. God declares his creation to be good, but beyond declaring it, he gives it to us in a way that is rich and lush, and beautiful. God is not a God that simply does things to do things. He does things, and he does them in a way that is appreciable by us. Now, a quick note. Do we always understand and appreciate it right away? Does every child appreciate the value of gold? Does everybody who, who is, likes being inside, somebody who is perhaps indoorsy, do they appreciate the value of fresh air and being outside? Not necessarily, but these are things that once we come to appreciate them, we know that they are good. We know that they declare, as it says in Psalm 19, the glory of God and that the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. What Genesis 2 also reminds us, church, is that the physical world isn't bad in itself. The physical world isn't bad. There's an ancient heresy that popped up in the first few hundred years after the church was founded called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is essentially the idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Now that actually has significant implications for people who bought into Gnosticism and its various permutations in the first centuries of its coming about as the church was getting started. Because if you say that the physical is bad, and yet scripture teaches that Jesus took on an incarnate physical form, all of a sudden you have a direct conflict between your paradigm of physical things being bad and the very nature that Christ himself assumed. So consequently, Gnosticism was declared not only unorthodox but heretical as it was encountered in the first few centuries after it popped onto the scene. But sometimes we, almost 2,000 years later, take on a somewhat Gnostic view about creation. That because creation is fallen, because our sin, man's sin, our first father's Adam's sin, had an impact upon all creation, that creation is bad. Well, this isn't true. We're not Gnostics. We acknowledge that although, as we said earlier, wolves and coyotes and bugs and landslides and oceans and thunderstorms may very well cause us significant bodily harm, they are not bad themselves. They are feeling the shock waves. They are feeling the ripple effects of the sin of humanity. When God recreates at the end of time, and this is one of the amazing things about Genesis 1 through 3, is it kind of sets the stage, as we'll talk about here for a second, for God's recreation act when Christ returns. He's not going to create one of these you know, uh, uh, futuristic metropolis-like cities where everything is stainless steel and concrete. 
our visions of future and our visions of, of um, progress are not what line up with God's vision of it. God's vision of progress, as we'll see here in a second, they are like a better version of his initial creation. They are not the, the dismissal of it. And Paul himself in Romans chapter 8 talks about this, about the fact that creation itself isn't bad. He says that the anxious longing of the creation or the created order, the natural world around us, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is the acknowledgement of, of what we see today with the things that can hurt us in the world. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Natural, our natural world, the earth that is around us, is compared to a, 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 a woman in labor, that it's uncomfortable, that it is straining, that it is not where it wants to be, but it knows what is on the other end of this ordeal. So this kind of makes us ask the question, how do we think about, how do we relate to creation? How do we think about, or how do we relate to creation? Well, there's a few things that I think are worth pointing out. We actually touched on them in this morning's catechism question. The second, the second commandment talks about idolatry. We don't worship creation. We don't worship something that is in the created order. We acknowledge that we ourselves are created. Are there bigger things than us? Yes, almost all of these trees out here are bigger than us. But as, as we read recently in Isaiah, if you're going through our Bible reading uh, program with us, that you could go take that tree and cut it down and make an idol, and then with the scraps, you make the fire to eat your food. We don't worship a creation. We don't worship something, whether it's a large rock, perhaps a man that was on the side of a mountain, rest in peace, or we, something as large as the sun or anything like that. We don't acknowledge those things as greater than the creator that created them. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, this is what, what, what Paul says is ultimately the fatal flaw for people is that they worship the creation rather than the creator. So the second commandment talks about that in that we avoid idolatry. But the third commandment we also talked about this morning, in the way the New City Catechism articulates it, and something that gets fleshed out significantly in more uh, uh, long-written-formed uh, catechisms, like the Westminster Longer Catechism, it's that we honor God by His Word and by His works. We honor God by doing what we're doing this morning, by going to his word, by praying, by singing, in fellowship, by enjoying the sacraments, but we also enjoy him and glorify him by honoring his works. So that means when we're walking down the street, we don't kick the flower simply for the sake of kicking the flower. We don't stomp on the insect that's outside. If it's in our home, you can stomp on it. That's part of dominion. John's going to talk about that in a few weeks. We don't stomp on the insect out in your yard simply for the sake of stomping on the insect. Moreover, you don't crumple up your hamburger wrapper and throw it out the window. You don't spray, spray your aerosol can up into the sky just for fun. You don't start tire fires in your backyard. We don't do these things because we are respecting the created works of God. Now, Christianity has had a, a bizarre relationship with conservation and the environmental movement. And part of this is because of the reason that many of the proponents of the environmental movement in the 20th century were doing, some from a Dar doing so from an, a, a Darwinistic, evolutionary, um, materialist perspective. There was no Christ underneath it. It was a Christless cons conservationism. Sometimes we talk about a Christless conservatism when it talks about politics. But conservationism was also a Christless endeavor. There was no purpose. There was no value. In fact, the value of a lot of conservation and a lot of environmentalism in the 20th century and certainly into the 21st century is because there is the assumption that that plant that you could kick or that bug that you could stomp on is really the same thing as you. That's why we don't stomp on it. 
We don't stomp on things. We don't kill things. We don't eat meat. We don't do stuff like that because they are the same as us. Well, of course, this is a grand inversion of precisely what we see in Genesis 2, that these things were created for us, but they were created for us to steward. They were created for us to take care of. So once again, God is fine with us eating the animal, but not for killing it simply for the sake of watching it suffer and die. Now that is a simplistic and very brief perspective on something like how a Christian should consider the environment or environmentalism or conservationism. Things like that are worth understanding. And once again, where do we get our marching orders? There is not a chapter and a verse in the New Testament that says, thou shalt have X many carbon offsets. I think the answer to that is zero. I heard recently that the, uh, um, the wildflowers, and wildflowers, they're fine. The wildfires in Canada have effectively offset any offsets that have been made in the past decade because that's just the way the world is. But there's no chapter and verse that tells us precisely what sort of engine we're supposed to have in our car, electric or combustion or things like that. There's no chapter and verse that talks about you know, how efficient we ought to operate our power plants or our homes. But we are also given in the first chapters of Genesis this mandate to take care of God's creation because he has made it for us and he has made it good. This is something that we acknowledge when we see it, but it, more importantly than that, it's something that God articulates in the goodness of the lushness and the productivity of his creation. But again, it's not to point us to creation. Doing so would be a violation of the second commandment. Seeing the creation simply for something good and great and something that we might even venerate is a violation of putting something, an idol, before God. The goodness of creation and understanding the intricacy and the beauty and the joy we receive when we see creation draws us to the creator himself. His goodness the fact that he has created this for us, the fact that he has given this for us to enjoy leads us back to him and our appreciation for him and his goodness. So first we have creation, we have two counts. Then in creation we have seeing that it is very good. And lastly, and there's so many more things we could talk about, in creation we see God's garden. God's garden. You know, Eden has become a just almost a... Um, a substitute for something that is beautiful. Eden is something that is a substitute for a, a, something that is paradise. My own little Eden, our little spot of Eden up in the mountains. But what was the Garden of Eden? Very little is said about it. And probably for the, case, the same reason that very little is said about a lot of other things in these early chapters of Genesis and of Scripture. Because this isn't the point. Eden's not the point. We're not trying to return to Eden. And, not to spoil the story, but in chapter 3, there's a very large, very scary angel between Eden and us. And even if we could get there, he would have words to say about it. But what was Eden? So often, and again, growing up in, in relatively conservative Baptist churches, what, I, what we talked a lot about, well, where was Eden? Let's, let's see if we can find it. Let's pull out our maps and see if we can determine where Eden is. Because we have all these great landmarks. We have these rivers, Pishon, and we have uh, Gihon, and the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And so we'd open our maps in the back of their Bibles. That's what they're for, of course. And we start to trace this out. We know this, but then we also know that there's a cataclysmic flood a few centuries later that changed things. And then we know that there's this angel that is standing in the way of the garden. And so the where of the Garden of Eden is not as important as the what of the Garden of Eden. This is what's being communicated. Eden, church, is a pattern and a preparation for God's dwelling with mankind. This is what Eden was. Eden could be thought of as God's whole garden in front of his temple. Eden could be considered as God's beautiful uh, landscape in front of his temple as he met with mankind. Meredith Klein, Old Testament scholar who taught at Gordon-Conwell for a number of decades, said that the Garden of Eden 
was a microcosmic, earthly version of the cosmic temple and an earthly version of the cosmic temple and the site of a visible local projection of the heavenly temple. At the first then, man's native dwelling place coincided with God's earthly dwelling. God and man always had, the, from, from creation, the desire for God to be with mankind, and he did so in the garden. Now, this may be a newer concept, the idea of the Garden of Eden being more than just a pretty garden with all of the animals and all of the plants with these two trees. Now, those two trees matters, and we'll talk about those two trees in the coming weeks. But as a whole, there's something else going on in this garden than just being a well-landscaped spot of land in the Middle East. Notice some of the things that we have uh, paralleled between the Garden of Eden and what happens later in Scripture. God walks in Eden with man. Later, he meets with man in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. We have gold and onyx and other gemstones that are all over the Garden of Eden. Later, these very same gemstones, gold and onyx in particular, are used to decorate the priests, the priestly garbs, and the instruments in the temple. Eden is entered from the east. We actually see it more used as an exit, as are later sanctuaries. God designed all sanctuaries for his temple and his tabernacles to be entered from the east. A river flows from Eden, and later in Scripture, we see this picture of a river flowing from the throne of God and from his holy habitation. There are countless examples of things that we see as the Garden of Eden is described in Genesis chapter 2 that are then later pictured in God's tabernacle, in God's temple, and ultimately in God's heavenly throne room as he brings all things to consummation. In Revelation 22, it says this, And he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his slaves will serve him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Church, Revelation 22, 1 through 4, wraps up so many of the threads that begin in the first chapters of Genesis and things that feel unresolved after the fall and after sin get brought to completion and brought to conclusion in these final images of what God does as he brings mankind and with him all of creation to a reconciliatory point with himself. But of course, the original audience, and by extension us, were not told about the Garden of Eden so that we would long to return to the Garden of Eden. The fact that there are, are cities, the fact that there is progress is not a bad thing. The Garden of Eden, the Promised Land, Mount Zion, the temple itself are all stops on a way to a better place. We cannot return to Eden. It has been cut off. It is something that has been sealed from mankind to enter into. But because of Christ, we have something that is being prepared for us that is better than Eden. Remember, if Eden was so great, and I'm stomping on territory for the next couple of weeks, if Eden was so perfect, why was Adam given a mandate to tend it, to keep it, to bring it into line, to, to harvest, to keep things in check? Eden was meant to be improved upon by man in perfect relationship with God. But just like man defaulted on not eating from that tree, he defaulted on those other mandates. And so, church, the gospel of the kingdom is not a return to Eden. It's a completion of Eden. Everything that we see play out as man is exiled out of Eden is now God doing a work to not just reconcile mankind to himself, but to recreate what had been fallen, what, as it said here in, in, um, in Romans earlier, 
the creation that was subjected to futility, God was not only restoring mankind, but God is now re- in the process of recreating all of his creation in preparation to once again dwell with mankind. The gospel of the kingdom is not a return to Eden. It's a completion of Eden. Notice those things that we read in Revelation 22. There there will be pure water. There there will be abundant fruit. And most importantly, the presence of the Lord. All of these things that Adam and Eve had access to in an unfallen state in Eden are things that we will experience in the new creation, but we will experience at a much grander level. We will experience these things at a much grander level because they are what God has worked on to complete. But they will also be at a grander level because what has gotten us to that point was not simply the act of creation, but it was the act of creation and redemption. And in doing so, we can sing to God's glory and we can honor him as not only our creator, but also our savior. That was something that separates us from Adam. That is something that separates this earth, this heavenly scene of a throne and a garden from the earthly garden, the footstool of God's throne that we see in Genesis 2. So church, there's so much that we could say about Genesis chapter 2. But the three things I think that are important for us to walk away from as we understand the nature of God's creation, as he gives us this close-up, zoomed-in perspective of his creative work, keeping in mind all the things that we talked about last week, that God is creator, that God created all things out of nothing, and that God created all things for his glory, we also see that God gives us these two accounts so that we can see it in fullness, that God's creation is good and that we have to see his goodness from it. And lastly, that God created a garden, a garden that he could meet with us, a garden that he could demonstrate his glory to his people. And this is something that we can anticipate. So now as we shift from Genesis 2 to the Lord's Supper, I think there's some interesting lines of continuity that are worth pointing out. God gave Adam food. Did he have to create a human that required food? Was that necessary? Was God constrained by some sort of outside force that said, this is how creation has to work? We need a mouth, and we need to chew, and we need nutrients. And so, God, you have to create humankind and almost every other creature to have a similar structure. Sometimes we take for granted that, no, God did that for another reason. God did that for a purpose that transcends our understanding. But probably it has to do with the fact that we enjoy food. That food is good. I know I'm excited about whatever's downstairs right now. But there's not only, the, again, the pragmatic utilitarian purpose of food. Christ gave us a specific use for food. He gave us, on the night he was betrayed, an opportunity to take two simple things that would be on every table throughout time in one shape or form, bread and wine, and to take these things and to be nourished by them. So just as in heaven, as we saw this picture of a completed garden, a tree of life on both banks of this river, try to figure that out in your head, that has fruit for the nourishment of the nations, but that we will be in the presence of God. And how can we require fruit when we're in the presence of God? How can we require spiritual nourishment from a little cup of wine? And how can we require spiritual nourishment from a little piece of bread? God has declared it to be so. This is not enough to give you the the calories that you need to make it through the day, particularly if it's going to be in the 80s. But what you get from this is something that is deeper and more meaningful. By faith, as we receive these elements, we have the real presence of Christ's Spirit. This is the amazing thing about the Lord's Supper. It doesn't save us, just as 
an apple or whatever fruit it was in the garden didn't save Adam. Just as the, the fruit that is being born by the tree of life in heaven will not save us and keep us in the presence of Christ. Just like those fruits did not save and will not save, these fruit of the vine and this bread doesn't save. But it pictures the saving work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And so consequently, the elders invite you, as the music is being played, to come up and receive the bread, receive the wine. If you are in Christ, then this is a meal for you. But it is a meal that is not meant to be taken lightly. It is a meal that is to be taken, not, not in a dour sense, but in a serious way. And so as you take it, as you come up, contemplate what Christ has done for you, and contemplate, as this is communion, how we ought to love one another, whether that be asking for forgiveness, or whether that be making plans, even in your heart in this moment, to show someone love today. This is what this supper is for. So I'll ask uh, the, the musicians to come up, and I will pray for us before we take the supper. Lord, you have created, and it is good. The world that you have created is a tangible world. Although there are such great mysteries and so many realities that are deep and spiritual, in your providence and wisdom, you have given us physical things to touch, to taste, and to experience. So, Lord, as we contemplate the glory and the beauty of trees that give us fruit, of rivers that refresh us and are appealing to the eye, and even simple things like precious metals and gemstones, we know that from the dawn of time, these things were given to declare your glory for us to enjoy, not on their own, but always pointing back to you. So at a much deeper, more significant level, Lord, let us receive these elements and the goodness that comes with them. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.